Hello, you're listening to Global Questions, the podcast breaking down international news and politics. I'm Hugh. And I'm Joshua. This is The Wrap-Up, your fortnightly dose of news from around the world. And as you can tell from the title of today's episode, this is a bit of a bittersweet moment for us. Not only is it our last wrap-up for 2021, as we'll be going on a Christmas break really soon, but even more importantly... Sadly, uh, it's my last wrap-up. I'm actually finishing with Global Questions and the Young Diplomat Society this year, and so I'll be passing on the torch to the rest of the team. Yeah, I can't quite believe this is the last time we'll be sitting down to chat about the world's news. Yeah, I know, it's really surreal and honestly pretty sad. It's been a lot of fun, but it's also going to feel really strange leaving it behind. Yeah, we'll stick around to the end of the episode. Hugh and I will recap our favourite stories from the past year, and we'll also give you a sneak peek into what the wrap-up will look like in 2022. But first, let's go to our first story. Lawyers in the United States and the United Kingdom are suing Facebook on behalf of Rohingya refugees. They say the social media platform allowed the spread of hate speech, ultimately paving the way for genocide led by Myanmar's military. Hugh, it's not every day that companies are accused of causing genocide, but that's exactly what happened last week. As you just heard there, Rohingya refugees from Myanmar are suing Facebook in both the US and the UK. And they say that the company is partly responsible for the murder of 10,000 Rohingya people. As a result, they're claiming 150 billion US dollars in compensation from Facebook. And that's 15% of Facebook's total value. And if the refugees are successful, it would be one of the biggest payouts in history. Yeah, it's certainly a huge payout, but I suppose it's also such a big accusation as well. So tell us more about the lawsuit. What events is it referring to? Yeah, well, the lawsuit concerns events that took place in Myanmar in 2017. So you may remember that during that time, Myanmar launched a brutal crackdown on the Rohingya, which is this small Muslim ethnic group that has been persecuted by the country's military for decades. They've been called the world's most unwanted people. Back in Myanmar, they're the lowest of the low, denied citizenship and widely seen as illegal immigrants who belong in Bangladesh. The 2017 crackdown took this persecution to a whole new level. Without warning, the military invaded Rohingya villages, burnt them down and executed thousands of people. Amnesty International has released satellite images which it claims show an orchestrated campaign to burn Rohingya villages in western Myanmar. The human rights group says it's detected up to 80 large fires in the western Rakhine state since August the 25th. All up, 750,000 Rohingyas were forced to flee Myanmar and 10,000 were killed. Yeah, I remember at the time just how horrific those stories were. Uh, But look, how is Facebook allegedly responsible for those atrocities that were committed by Myanmar's military? Well, evidence has emerged that Facebook allowed the military to use its platform to whip up hatred against the Rohingyas. So Myanmar's military allegedly created thousands of fake accounts and employed more than 700 officers to spread racist misinformation calling for the extermination of the Rohingyas. And unfortunately, this campaign was very effective in turning the public against the Rohingyas. 
There's very little sympathy here for the persecuted minority in Rakhine State. The perception here among many is that it's Burmese Buddhism that is under siege from militant Islam. That meant that when the military began executing Rohingyan people in 2017, many in Myanmar supported their actions. And let that just sink in for a moment. You've got the Myanmar military using Facebook to conduct a disinformation campaign against its own population in order to create support for a genocide. And this is where the lawsuit comes in. It alleges that Facebook knew what the military was doing on its platform and yet refused to do anything about it. Wow, okay, that's like really shocking stuff. What has Facebook had to say about that really big allegation? Well, a day after the lawsuit was filed, Facebook made some big announcements. In other news, Facebook parent Meta will ban all pages and accounts belonging to Myanmar military-backed businesses, it said, expanding its restraints on the country's armed forces. Myanmar's secretive military... And while it hasn't yet commented on the lawsuit directly, it's actually going to be really hard for the company to deny responsibility. Not only has a UN report found that Facebook was partly responsible for what happened in Myanmar, but the company has also previously acknowledged that it made mistakes. So does that mean that the Rohingyas are likely to succeed in court? Not necessarily. So even though Facebook has admitted some responsibility, there are laws in place that usually prevent social media companies from being held responsible for the posts of their users. So I think the refugees face a bit of an uphill battle here. But regardless of the outcome, I think the real power of the lawsuit may be in its ability to highlight the growing power of Facebook in developing nations like Myanmar. And this came as a bit of a surprise to me, but Facebook actually offers free internet to over 65 developing countries. However, in order to use that free internet, people need to sign up to Facebook. And so that means that for millions of people around the world, Facebook is the only way they can access information online. And that gives the company extraordinary sway of a public debate in these nations. In fact, Facebook has already been accused of fueling ethnic violence in India, Ethiopia, Sri Lanka, and Mexico. All of this is adding momentum to a global push to regulate social media. We saw the topic discussed at the G20 last month, and even at Biden's Democracy Summit just over this last weekend. Leaders are recognizing that what plays out on social media platforms has real-world consequences. So I think we can expect to hear a lot more about this issue in 2022. You know, we are prepared to get back into the deal as soon as possible, as soon as Iran is. But in the meantime, we can't stand by and not be prepared for a world in which Iran may be choosing to delay, build its program, try to build more leverage. We obviously have to respond, and so that's what we're doing. We're preparing ourselves. Well, Joshua, over the last few weeks, diplomats representing several of the world's biggest powers have been meeting in Vienna in the hopes of reviving the Iran nuclear deal. And I must say, the situation has been fairly tense. You see, the international community is keen to restore the nuclear deal after the agreement fell apart in 2018. That was when former US President Donald Trump withdrew his country from the pact. At the heart of the Iran deal was a giant fiction that a murderous regime desired only a peaceful nuclear energy program. This Iranian promise was a lie. 
Now, since that US withdrawal happened, Iran has been pressing ahead with its nuclear program, while Washington has placed additional sanctions on Tehran. And the result of all that has been that Iran is now at a point where it is producing large amounts of enriched uranium that is almost weapons grade, while at the same time, its relationship with the US remains at rock bottom. So all eyes are really on the international community right now as they attempt to avert a crisis and calm the situation down before it's too late. Yeah, the stakes seem to be the highest they've been in a long time, and Iran seems to be getting closer and closer to the long-feared nuclear weapon. So how did we get to this point? Well, the deal was originally set up to prevent Iran from developing nuclear weapons, and that was in return for international sanctions relief. But since it collapsed, Iran has really stepped up its efforts to produce a credible nuclear weapons program. So that's seen Iranian officials press ahead with efforts to enrich uranium to a quality that sits just under that which is required to produce nuclear warheads. We would start from tomorrow, enrichment up to 60%, and that is for Iran needs. But it's also seen Iran limit the access which UN monitors previously enjoyed to its nuclear facilities. And what's more, Iran has also created quite a large stockpile of enriched uranium in addition to testing a number of weapon systems used to deliver the warheads to their targets. So in short, Joshua, Iran has used the last three years to make some considerable progress on its nuclear ambitions. For its part, meanwhile, the US has employed a strategy known as maximal pressure, and that was seen under President Trump, and it essentially saw Washington place a number of tough new sanctions on the Iranian economy. The president is issuing an executive order authorizing the imposition of additional sanctions against any individual owning, operating, trading with, or assisting sectors of the Iranian economy, including construction. And those efforts have actually continued under President Biden, although the new US administration has also been seeking a return to the deal and a reversal of Trump's hostile stance. Uh, the familiar merry-go-round of sanctions followed by diplomatic negotiations, though, as we've kind of seen, they don't always work. So is there a fallback plan here if the negotiations fall through? Yeah, well, in addition to the diplomacy and the sanctions, there is a more violent side to the recent tensions. Israel has long opposed the Iran deal, and so since the US withdrawal, it's been working with Washington to sabotage Iran's nuclear program. The US and Israel have also reportedly discussed a number of joint military operations which could destroy Iran's nuclear program if necessary. Yeah, let's hope it doesn't get to that point and that the talks succeed. So tell us, how have they been going so far? Well, the most recent round of talks began very poorly. Iran refuses to negotiate with the US directly, and so Washington has been forced uh, to engage with Tehran via a number of intermediaries. Uh, but more than that, in the last fortnight, the US and its EU-UK counterparts were actually prepared to walk away from negotiations after Iran put forward demands which were deemed unacceptable. And that crisis led the other participants in the talk, Russia and China, who are far more supportive of Iran, to intervene and talk Tehran down from its tough position. But that doesn't mean the talks have succeeded. It just means that they'll be able to continue. So in order to actually get a successful result, the EU, UK, China and Russia will have to convince Iran to dismantle much of its recent nuclear progress, in addition to getting the US to return to the deal. So clearly there's a lot to hash out and with the threat of violence still on the horizon, diplomats from all sides are going to have to work really hard to keep the ship afloat. I'm 
Hugh, our next story takes place in Serbia, where a cosy relationship between the Serbian government and an Australian company has provoked huge protests across the country. For the last three weekends, thousands of Serbians have walked onto major highways at 50 different locations, blocking cars and trucks. And as a result, parts of the country have been literally brought to a standstill. Wait, why are they protesting and what does it have to do with an Australian company all the way in Serbia? Well, the Australian company in question is Rio Tinto. And as you've probably guessed, the protests therefore all come down to one word. Mining. Ispred zgrade Radio Televizije Srbije u toku je protest udruženja Kreni promeni zbog navodnog odbijanja javnog So it was recently discovered that Serbia is sitting on top of roughly 10% of the world's lithium reserves. And why is that important? Well, lithium is the key ingredient in batteries, especially batteries used in electric cars and renewable energy storage. And given the growing importance of renewable energy, demand for lithium is expected to triple in the next three years alone. So it's fair to say that mining companies are suddenly very interested in Serbia. Including Rio Tinto, obviously. Yeah, including Rio Tinto. So it plans to build Europe's largest lithium mine in Serbia. And it's very likely it'll get approval to do that, as Rio has a very close relationship with the Serbian government. Even the country's president has been heavily advocating for the mine and says it's key to the country's future. But it seems that plenty of Serbs disagree because there's been a huge backlash. Mm. Yeah, look, a project this size would certainly be a much-needed boost for Serbia's economy. So why are so many people against it? Well, Serbia is already the fifth most polluted country in Europe. Air pollution there is three times the recommended limit. And that causes thousands of deaths every year and has led to one in six Serbian children developing asthma. And environmental experts are warning that Rio Tinto's mine will only make Serbia's environmental problems worse. So it's supposed to be located near two rivers that provide drinking water to 40% of Serbia's population. And it's also nearby crucial farming areas that produce a fifth of the country's food. And studies have shown that the mine is likely to irreversibly damage those areas. Mm, and what's been the government's response to all of that? Well, this is the interesting thing. The government actually says it's doing all of this for the environment. So it's predicted that the mine will produce enough lithium to make 1 million electric vehicles every year for the next 40 years. That means that it will help get a huge number of fuel-powered vehicles off the road. And what's more, Serbia hopes to join the European Union in the near future. But in order to do that, it's first got to meet the EU's environmental standards. And that's going to cost the country a lot of money. And here's the crazy thing. The government says mining is the best way for it to get the money to clean up the environment. As for the EU itself, it's been rather quiet about all of this. So it currently imports lithium from overseas, which is really, really expensive. And in order to become self-sufficient and to reduce its emissions, it wants a local source for lithium. And the most obvious candidate, of course, is Serbia. 
And I think this perfectly illustrates the hidden dangers in the global push for renewables. As we've seen from COP26, switching to renewables is really, really important. But experts also say that it's vital that we source the materials for batteries, solar panels and wind turbines in a sustainable way. Otherwise, we may end up increasing environmental damage and hurting vulnerable communities, not only in places like Serbia, but also in Asia and Africa, where very, very similar issues are currently playing out. Well, Joshua, at the moment, all eyes in sport are understandably on the upcoming Beijing Winter Olympics, which we've discussed here on the wrap-up. And that's especially with the US leading an international boycott of the China-hosted games. But don't make the mistake of thinking that bobsledding and figure skating are the only areas in the world of sports to be affected by politics. Spare a thought for the 2022 African Men's Handball Championship, which has unexpectedly become the subject of a boycott of its own following Algeria's decision not to attend the Games. Okay, so here's the thing. I didn't even realise handball was a real sport, let alone that there were international competitions. In all seriousness, though, why is Algeria boycotting the handball championships? The thing is, the Games are set to be hosted in the territory of Morocco, or at least that's what the Moroccan government would say. But if you ask Algeria or any member of the Sahrawi ethnic group, they would argue that the Games are actually being hosted in occupied territory. And that's because the championship is being held in the disputed region of Western Sahara. Now, Western Sahara is mostly held by Morocco, but it's also claimed by the Sahrawi Arab Democratic Republic, or SADR. And essentially, the SADR is fighting for the independence of the Sahrawi people from Morocco. Morocco, on the other hand, sees Western Sahara as part of its own territory after its former colonial master, Spain, abandoned the region in 1975. But here's the trick. Algeria and Morocco are arch-rivals, and so Algiers has kept a close alliance with the SADR in order to weaken their shared Moroccan enemy. So while the handball championship sounds relatively low-key in the grand scheme of international sport, this year's choice of location actually touches on a major regional dispute. Again, I didn't realise handball could be so complicated. But tell us more, why are Algeria and Morocco so angry at each other that they can't even agree on matters of handball? Well, as I think you could imagine, it's a long story. So prior to colonisation, the various states which occupied modern-day Algeria and Morocco often clashed. But look, it was France's colonisation of both regions that created the tensions we know today. You see, during the colonial period, France actually transferred territory between the two sides, and that created long-lasting rivalries and disputes in the process. After decades of mounting discontent, French North Africa has finally burst into open revolt. Some 200 Frenchmen and 650 Arabs lost their lives, and nobody yet knows how far the flames will spread through this explosive corner of France's dwindling empire. Now, these tensions actually led Morocco and Algeria to fight several military skirmishes in 1963 and 1976. It's a war which has cost thousands of lives and millions of dollars in lost military equipment. Almost half the Moroccan army is now engaged in the defense of this area. And even now, the two sides maintain huge militaries, which are essentially custom-built to fight each other, despite both countries having extremely low standards of living. 
The Algerian government is severing diplomatic ties with its neighbor Morocco. The Kingdom of Morocco had criticized the move by Algeria. Algeria has accused Morocco of killing three of its nationals on a desert highway. Algeria has announced the closure of its country's airspace to all Moroccan aircraft. Low economic performance in both countries is actually partly blamed on the fact that they engage in almost no mutual trade. So that just goes to show how serious their rivalry really is. Yeah, it sounds unbelievably serious, especially now that Algeria is backing the SADR militants simply to try and weaken Morocco even more. Yeah, that's right. Algeria sees a lot of value in fueling the SADR's insurgency against Morocco in Western Sahara. But interestingly, Algeria has recently seen its own tactics used against it. Just this year, clashes and bombings have occurred in coastal regions of Algeria as part of an insurgency led by the Kabylie people for independence from Algeria. Two burned down truck carcasses lying on the side of a Western Sahara highway. According to Algiers, their drivers, three Algerian nationals were killed in an attack, which it blames on its neighbor and arch rival, the Kingdom of Morocco. Algeria accuses Morocco of supporting the Kabylie rebels in much the same way as Algeria has supported the SADR. So as you can see, in the context of all this chaos, the ostensibly low-key handball competition has taken on a very political nature. It certainly has. So what comes next, do you think? Well, frankly, it looks like the games are just going to go ahead without Algeria. And you can say much the same for the disputes in Western Sahara and between Algeria and Morocco, with conflict between the Sahrawi people and Morocco having continued since 1975. I'm sure there'll be many more disputes like these to come in this fascinating corner of North Africa. Well, that brings us to the end of our fourth and final story. How do you feel, Hugh, knowing that that's your final one? Look, it's obviously uh, really sad to head off, uh, but I've got a lot to look forward to. Now I get to have all the enjoyment of listening to it without the stressful late nights producing it. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely been a lot of those late nights over the past 11 months that we've been doing this. And in fact, I've actually calculated that we've done 68 stories. And I thought as a way to recap 2021 and also a way to say farewell to you, Hugh, it would be kind of fun to look back at our favourite story from this year's episodes. So what do you think yours is, Hugh? Uh, so I think my favourite story would have to be the one where we covered El Salvador's decision to make Bitcoin legal tender. Um, I'm not a Bitcoin bro, but there was something kind of hilarious about reading a headline, which almost sounded like it should be in a satire piece. But at the same time, it made a lot of sense for this small Central American country. Yeah, one of the many very interesting and random stories that we've talked about on the wrap-up. Yeah, what about you, Josh? I think I'd have to select our story from May about whether or not the Olympics would go ahead. So back then, of course, there was a real chance that they would be cancelled and there was a lot of tension within Japanese society. But thankfully, it all did come together without triggering a global super spreader event. And I think I can speak for most of us here. The Olympics are actually such a welcome distraction from COVID. And it was quite surreal to see so many people gathering from around the world. Plus, it was kind of fun to play around with the Olympic anthem and weave it into the background of the story. Yeah, to take our listeners sort of behind the curtains, Josh and I both write our scripts, but Joshua is also the one that has to put together the audio, uh, which is a huge job. And I do amazing at it. So well done to you. there. Thank you for that. Oh, it's a real team effort. But do you want to do the final sign off for us? Sure thing. Well, look, that's all for the wrap-up for 2021. 
Next week's episode, our final for the year, will be part six of our in-depth series on the decline of democracy. Rhiannon will be taking a deep dive into the world of conspiracy theories and the role they've played in undermining democracy. Yeah, conspiracy theories seem to have exploded throughout the pandemic. And I think all of us know someone that's gone down the rabbit hole, unfortunately. Yeah, for sure. Well, although Hugh won't be here, I'll be back in mid-January with the first instalment of the wrap-up for 2022. While we search for a new co-host, you'll get to hear from some other members of the Global Questions team who'll be joining me to unpack the fortnight's news. Now, until then, you can follow our Instagram page for news, updates, quizzes, and bonus content. You can also get in touch with us and suggest an episode topic via our website. Links are in the episode description. Have a safe and happy Christmas, and I'll see you next year. And I'll be listening in. Bye.